us on these specific subjects. And today we're going to look at life in the workplace. Sometimes I bring you some like really deep theological, doctrinal type of stuff. Sometimes, and this is one of those rare times, it gets highly practical. And that's really what today is all about. This is just a whole lot of practical stuff about life in the workplace, about how best to manage the people that you're working for, as well as how to manage the people that are working under you, perhaps. And so that's what we're talking about here. We'll turn over in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 5 through 9. And this is a, uh, what we'll see here are some folks who are diligently working under extremely difficult work-related circumstances, okay? So as is our custom, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And, okay, I almost got it. All right, here we go. Ephesians chapter 6, let's read verses 5 through 9 together. Here we go. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so I just want to walk through these verses together. Paul begins in verse 5. He says, slaves, obey your masters. You say, hold on time out right there, Gordon. What's this deal about slaves here? Because he tells the slaves to treat them, obey them with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart just as they would obey Christ. You say, well, shouldn't the Apostle Paul be telling them to, uh, to walk out on their masters? Shouldn't he be trying to disrupt this horrible practice of slavery there in the first century? I mean, the Bible does not advocate for slavery, does it? Let me be very clear and unequivocal in my response to that. No, the Bible does not advocate for slavery. Slavery of the kind that was experienced here in the Americas during the years of bringing people from Africa here to work on plantations. That's not the kind of slavery that is talked about here in the first century. And so that's really the difference that we have to understand here between the two. There's a difference between first century, what they called slavery, and what was experienced here in the Americas. Let me speak to that just a little bit. In the first century, the type of slavery that was practiced is what historians call indentured servitude. Indentured servitude. Indentured servitude was widely practiced in the Roman Empire. About one-third of the population of, Ro of the Roman Empire, about one-third of 120 million people, were considered indentured servants. Slavery in ancient Rome was different than what was practiced here in America. It was not a condition of ethnicity. It was not a condition of a person's skin color or any other determining factor. Rather, slavery was the process that their society put in place for training workers in a skilled trade. For example, if you were a shoemaker, a shoemaker would take on an indentured servant or an apprentice, they might have called them, or in this case, a slave, and that indentured servant uh, would then work for the master, and they would train uh, that person in the trade of shoemaking. And um, they would house that person, they'd feed that person, they would care for that indentured servant, and they would give them, you know, take care of their health care type stuff and all that, and even give them a share in the profits toward the end of their time in service to that shoemaker. After a set number of years, the indentured servant would then be released from their contract, and they would go on to open up their own shop, 
and then they would take on their own slaves or their own indentured servants, and the process would continue. Um, I might add that this model for training up the next generation of workers was not limited to just shoemakers and seamstresses and things of that sort. Indentured servants covered the broad base of skilled trades like carpentry, bridge building, road building, uh, masons, uh, factory managers, farming, the whole bit. And so for this reason, people fought to get their children signed on with someone who was in a trade. They wanted their children to become slaves to become indentured servants. It was a desirable way for a person to move up in society. About one-third of the Roman population were considered the elites. They were the ones that owned the land and, and, and were the, the debutantes of town. And then the other third were these indentured servants. These were the people that had their own shops, had their own businesses uh, eventually. And then the other third were those that were more left into poverty. And so if you, if you got your child into some sort of indentured servanthood where they could come and be an apprentice, that was kind of a guarantee. It was the security against a good future for your child. And so this was a very desirable thing. So indentured servanthood, very different from slavery, what was experienced here in America. I want to make very clear as to what the Bible is saying here this morning when it mentions the word slave. So let's move on. Verse 5. Paul tells these indentured servants, these slaves, to obey your earthly masters. Now, Paul would have not been telling them to obey their earthly masters if they were doing a good job of it. Does that make sense? Oftentimes, if Paul says for them to do something, it's probably because they're not following through on it. And so, this, so Paul reminds them of how he wants them to be acting on the job. Specifically, verse 6 reveals how they are acting out of line. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, Obey your masters not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, verse 7, Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. So the problem that some of the endangered servants are having is that they're working very diligently, they're working very efficiently, they're giving their very best when their master is around. But when their master is gone, when their master's eye is not on them, when he's left the job site, these folks start slacking off. And so Paul says, look, that's not the Christian way. Paul says all work, whether the master, the employer is there or not, all work is to be done to a level of excellence. Slacking off and cutting ourselves a break when the boss is not on the job site, friends, Paul says that's not the Christian way. To throw in some additional positive incentives for these slaves, these indentured servants, to execute on what Paul's telling them to do, he says in verse 8, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever he does, whether he is slave or free. In other words, you may not get a share of the profits today may not show, in your, show up in your paycheck today, but the Lord God is watching, and he's taking notes. And it may not show up in your check, in your bank account, but it will be in your eternal bank account. That's what the scripture just promised to these indentured servants, okay? So that addresses the slaves' actions on the job site and what they're wrestling with, but let's look at this from the other perspective, from the perspective of the master over these indentured servants from the perspective of the employer. Verse 9, And masters, he says, treat your slaves in the same way, that is, knowing that God is watching. Do not threaten them. Again, he tells them not to do this because perhaps for, we might assume that they were threatening these indentured servants, these slaves. They were very hard taskmasters toward uh, some of them, toward their uh, workers. Um, and so uh, Paul says, look, Let's not treat our employees in this kind of a way, in a threatening kind of way. Paul says, 
you need to come back down to earth, masters. You need to come back down to the, to the real world and reckon you're getting too big for your britches, right? You got a little bit of power, got a little bit of control, and you're getting too big for your britches. And so Paul says, hey, look, let's remember that God is our tax, taskmaster, that uh, these folks are not cattle for us to just prod around and, 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 and treat them in an inhumane way. God doesn't play, play favorites. He will smoke you, and it doesn't matter how important you think you are. God is watching what you're doing. So he says, stop threatening your employees. Okay, that is the situation in Ephesus. And that's our treatment of this text, which means it's time for us to ask a really important question. What difference does this make to my life? You say, Gordon, uh, I mean, I appreciate Paul trying to help these folks out and all, but slaves and masters, I mean, what's that got to do with me? What difference does any of this make to my life? Well, that's a really great question. Let's talk about that. Um, Let's take a look at our maturity model. We've put this up on the screen last month a couple of times. I try to bring this up about once a year because one of the goals of our church, one of the goals of our church is to reach lost people for Christ. A second goal of our church, and the only other goal of our church, is to lead people to maturity. And so that's what this model is about. So every once in a while, you'll see me pull this model out, and we'll talk about it a little bit. Let me kind of explain what's going on here because what I want for you to see in looking at this model today is to assess, if you're an employee, to assess where on this chart you'd put your boss. Where do you think their maturity level is as a manager of people? Uh, Perhaps in their church life, they're like at stage four. We'll talk about these stages here in a second, or stage five. But on the job, when they're managing people and the way that they treat people, what does that look like? And then what I want to talk about is how you can win under whatever kind of a person you're working under. And then we're going to look at it really quick in a fast fire or whatever rapid fire round on, okay, well, what if I am the boss? What, how do I manage people at these different stages? So let's just first talk about the different stages of maturity. Just a real quick refresher here. If you haven't been or you have already got some of this stuff, the stage one is what we call the, um, what do we call it? We call it the powerless stage. And this is where a person uh, feels like they don't know what next steps to take to move their life forward. Uh, they don't have the resources or the know-how or just the avenues to take to begin moving their life in a more positive direction. And so they feel powerless. A person who's at stage two is this association stage, and that is somebody that they, they find their power by associating themselves with people or places or events where you know, it was in to be a part of. Uh, they'll name drop. They'll tell you where they were at uh, this past weekend. <laughs> Marathon, sorry. <laughs> Mr. Association, Mr. Association guy. But anyway, so they'll tell you all that to try and say, hey, look, I'm a person of importance. That's what the association stage person is talking about. Um, anyway, outed myself, I guess. Um, so, and then the third stage is the arrive state. And that's the people that are, um, they are in the corner office. They've got the large checking account. They've got the car that they drive. They've got all the symbols that, of status that say, I'm an important person, right? And they, their whole identity is wrapped up in that. And so then you move on to the other side of the equation. And on the other side, you begin to see a more deepening of a person's personality, more deepening of a person's spiritual walk and their maturity. And that is, begins at this stage four, where a person begins to uh, reflect on the ultimate questions of life, the ultimate, you know, what, what, am I on, what am I been put on earth here for? God, what do you want to accomplish? I mean, I've got only so many days to live on this earth. What do you want me to do with my life, God? How can I pour it out in a way that's more meaningful than me just having a nice house and driving a nice car and people think that I'm somebody of some significance or some importance? 
And so that's this stage four. They begin to ask those questions. Once they begin to answer those questions and then have the courage to live in response to that, they move on to what we call the fifth stage, the stage of purpose. This is where they begin to feel like they have a real sense of purpose to their life and a real sense of meaning to their life. Uh, the stage six is the gestalt stage. These are the Mother Teresas of the world. These are the Billy Grahams of the world. These are that high school football coach that you still remember that's calling you away from the shallow side the shallow side of this model over to maturity. These are the people who just the memory of them, you may not have had a personal relationship with them, or you may not, like I say, may not still be in a personal relationship with them, but just the memory of who they are, just the, the quality of their life, it calls you to want to be something more than a kingdom unto yourself. Okay, so those are our six stages of maturity. Again, what we want to take a look at is uh, where do we place our boss? Where do we place, so look at it from that perspective, where do we place our manager on this uh, chart. And so I want to give you a, a few um, criteria uh, that explain somebody at stage one, explain kind of what somebody at stage two, what their managerial style is like, and then you kind of assess where you think your boss is. Okay, let's start with stage one, a stage one employer. A stage one employer, the way that they get things done. Everybody with me so far? All right, let's make sure. The way they, you might want to jot some notes down here. This is good stuff. Uh, the way that they get things done the only way that they know how to get things done is through manipulation. They're constantly manipulating people and circumstances and situations in order to get people to move, in order to get people to do what it is that they want them to do. Manipulation is their number one and only way. Intimidation, form of threats, domination, all that sort of thing. They operate on the basis of fear, inspiring fear in others, largely because they feel powerless and insecure themselves. And so they can't handle you or others questioning them in any way way because of this they are feckless they are fearless they have they use bully tactics this is the stage one manager stage two managers managers at stage two the way that they get things done is by making deals making deals uh think about your boss think about your manager does this describe how he or she motivates their employees to do their job okay um, stage two managers they literally have something that the employee wants like a raise or recognition or promotion or extra vacation days, and they are willing to give those out if, they're willing to dole those out to us if we will execute and we will do what it is that they're asking us to do. This is how they go about getting things done. But the goal here, it's more than just getting stuff done for the stage two manager. There's an underlying goal here, and that is to keep the employee dependent on the manager looking to the manager for approval, looking to the manager for security, looking to the manager for ideas, because as long as we are dependent on them, then, hey, they've got the upper hand, they're holding all the cards, they've got control, and that's what the stage two manager wants. They want control of you and of the situation. Stage three managers. Managers at stage three have one thing in mind, and that is to win. That's what they want to do. They're all about winning. Um, they act like a winner, they dress like a winner, and so sometimes they're so good at selling their winning attitude that it can be really hard to turn them down. I mean, they're really good at this stuff. Um, it's easy with this kind of a leader to get caught up in their charisma and their charm. Typically, the people around them duplicate their personality and their outward appearance and their outward confidence. Because if this is what it takes to win, then okay, why would I want to do something different? Why would I want to rock the boat? Stage four managers. Managers at stage four, the way that they get things done, they're known for doing the right thing. 
doing the right thing. So if you have a stage for me, again, they may be in a different stage in their married life, they may be in a different stage in their church life, but as it relates to them managing other people, uh, this is a person who they are known for doing the right thing. They are willing to do the right thing even if it means that they have less profits. They're willing to do the right thing even if it means bad publicity. They're willing to do the right thing even if it means negative repercussions. Stage four managers are known for being fair and honest. In fact, they're willing to be so fair and honest that sometimes they'll walk into a conversation with us and they'll say some things that yeah, makes us uncomfortable, we really didn't want to hear, but at the end of the day, we realized that they were doing it for our benefit and we're glad that they were willing to be courageous and to share those things with us. They're known for being a person who does the right thing. Stage five managers. Managers at stage five lead by drawing the best out of their people. You leave their presence daily a better person. Just being around them makes you want to be a better person. Not just as an employee, but they make you want to spend more time with your kids, make you want to look into their hearts, uh, into the hearts of the people around you. They make you stop and reflect on the big picture of life. They make you want to take pride in your work. Um, you could say with sincerity that the stage five manager that their greatest joy in life is seeing others succeed. Think about your managers. Is that what their greatest joy in life is? to see others succeed. If so, then you have a stage five manager. And then finally, the stage six manager, real quickly, are known for their wisdom. These are people who constantly point the rest of us toward what really matters in life. All right, here's my question. Where on this chart does your manager, employer, boss belong? Your teacher. Where do they belong? Okay. Which of these stages does your company's philosophy most closely resemble. You got that? Right? Everybody got that? All right. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 9. Let's go back. Paul addresses this issue of how these masters are behaving. Look at chapter 6 and verse 9. He says, And masters, these are the employers, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them. Sounds like some stage one employers that they're dealing with here, right? These, Christ, these are Christian bosses that are behaving in a shallow and immature way as managers of people. This is not a good reflection of their Christian faith. They're Christians. They're believers. They probably go to church. They go to church every Sunday. They're reading this letter addressed to them. And yet, their ability to manage other people does not reflect the best of Christ. Okay, so that raises a different question. How then if that's the kind of manager I got, maybe he or she's even a Christian manager that shows up to church on every Sunday, but they're still stage one in how they treat people, or two, or whatever. How do I survive and maybe even thrive with a stage one, stage two, stage three type of manager? All right, so here comes the pay dirt for us uh, that are employees. Here's how you do it. If you have a stage one manager, look at Ephesians 6 and verse 5. Ephesians 6 and verse 5, it says, here's how you manage that person. Slaves, obey. Obedience is the number one way to get along with and survive, in some circumstances, a stage one type of manager. As we said earlier, they expect blind obedience. In other words, don't ask them why it is that you're doing something. Uh, they will interpret you asking them why as an offense, as a questioning of their authority. They're just simply looking for you. I said it, you go do it. I say it, you, you, you say jump, I say how high. That's what the stage one manager requires. And so you have two options in that scenario. Um, either uh, you keep your head down 
and you do what's asked or you find a new job. That's what you got. Those are your options. If you have a stage two manager, how do you work under somebody like that? First thing is ask for their advice. Uh, you don't do this because their advice is necessarily good. <laughs> uh, you do this because it'll build their confidence. A second way to manage your stage one manager is to do extra work for them. Uh, you say, Gordon, that sounds like brown nosing. Yes, you would be right. That is what it looks like. That's what it sounds like. That's what it is for people who don't understand what we're doing here. But by you doing that as a Christian, you're doing it to build their confidence. You're not doing it for your own benefit. You're doing it for their benefit. Saying, hey, can I do some extra work for you? Can I help you out? Can I do something extra? Um, and then the third thing about stage two managers, the way to manage that person or that situation, to thrive in that situation is never, ever, ever, ever embarrass them publicly. Never embarrass, like whether a joke or kidding around or standing around with a group of people from work and saying something in their direction that slights them, never embarrass them publicly. They just can't handle it. Stage three managers, how do you best work for them? Well, the first thing is work very hard for them, very hard for them. Number two is don't ask for their help unless you absolutely need it. Stage three managers will take a look at your, um, will take a look at you coming to ask them for help as you don't know how to solve a problem or you're incompetent to solve the problem. And so what they want to see is that you can figure it out on your own rather than you coming to them and asking them for their help. Um, number three thing about stage three managers is don't ever go over their head. Don't make an end run around somebody who's a stage three manager. They will interpret this as you not being a team player and you will immediately be called disloyal and you'll be off the team before you know it. Know their rules and follow them as much as possible. And then finally, when working with a stage three boss, hang on tight because this is a winner. And uh, if you hit your wagon to this winner, I mean, they'll more than likely as they get promoted, they're going to want a team of people to go along with them and you'll probably likely get promoted along with them as well. So nothing wrong with hitching your wagon to a winner. Stage four managers, just the opposite of stage three managers. They want you to come to them after you've done your work after you've researched it, after you've figured out and, and got to the point where you're either stuck or where you're finished with all of your presentations or whatever it is that you're working on, um, but they want you to come to them and ask them for their advice. And the reason being is because they look at things differently than most of the rest of us do. They see insights and, and uniqueness uh, that the rest of us maybe don't see. And so they want for you to come because it'll make your work that much better. And then last group, stages five and six, we can lump these two together. Don't imitate them. Remember, the stage three person wants you to imitate them. They want you to dress like them, want you to act like them, want you to carry yourself like them. You want to have that winning attitude the way they have a winning attitude. But the stage five and six, they want you to have your own unique style. Don't walk around acting like me. That's what the stage five and six says. They want for you to develop your own self and your own self-confidence, your own unique style. All right. I know that was a huge information dump. But hopefully it's helpful for those of us who are in scenarios where we have a manager or we have a boss of some kind, and we can kind of flesh that out, see what that looks like and how best to thrive under that scenario. But for those of you who um, have people that work under you as an employer, uh, what does it look like to manage people at these different stages? So let me just kind of rapid fire this out really quick. Um, how do you manage employees at these various stages? Stage one, you have stage one employees. Here's what you do. You give them structure and limits structure and limits. You clearly define the behavior that you expect, and then you set that behavior and you enforce that behavior. Keyword, enforce 
that behavior. Um, you punish those uh, that when they break those rules, uh, you punish them for it. Uh, if you don't want, if you want to go a step further in helping that stage stage one employee mature, um, you can help with their self-esteem by encouraging them to learn more skills, rewarding them with things like salary increases and rec recognition. Take the concept of an apprenticeship very seriously when you're dealing with a stage one person. If you want to help them mature and move out of that stage, for managing stage two employees. Let them learn from their mistakes. The best thing that you can do for a stage two employee is to let them fail. Uh, let them try and fail. And they'll learn from that. And it'll be a really good positive thing for them, trial and error. Um, they'll also learn by observing others who are doing the right things. And so again, apprenticeships at that stage is also very important. For managing stage three employees, reward their competence with promotions and raises. Give them regular and honest feedback. Let them know how they are perceived by others around them because they don't think that there's anything wrong with them. They think everybody's fine and everybody's good with how they are, how they run over people and stuff like that. And so you need to help them. Now that they've become a competent person in their skill set and their ability to make things happen, now you need to help them become a quality person, right? And so that's why they need that honest feedback. For stages four, five, and six employees, in a nutshell, just give them the reins. They're going to do a great job for you. Um, and so what you need to do as their employer is you need to give them the resources that they need to get the job done and the authority to make decisions to do a good job. So that's the two things that they need. They need the resources to get it done and the authority to make that job happen. Now let me say one last thing here in closing, that if you, if you understand the unique maturity of the person that you're dealing with, maybe, just maybe, there's a way to thrive even if the situation is less than ideal. And if the situation is less than ideal, um, hear these hopeful words again as a promise from the scriptures, a promise from God Almighty to you. Here's God's promise to you. You ready? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because, you know why? The Lord will reward you for whatever good you do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for giving us a fresh look at our workplace, for giving us a fresh look at our classroom and the people that are around us, the people that are managing us or the people that are working for us or we're working alongside. Lord, may we, may we take our role in maturing those around us very intentionally. May we be very intentional about that. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move in our hearts on behalf of those that are struggling in areas of maturity or who need to grow in, in different ways. And Lord, may we see how we can be a part of what you're accomplishing, what you're doing in their lives by giving them the right kind of encouragement wherever they may be on this scale. God, we pray for our own work life, that we would recognize that you demand excellence in everything that we do. Because even if our employer is not looking over our shoulder right now, Lord, you are watching. And the Christian way is to give our very best in everything we do. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.